I know Twitter is committing massive advertising fraud and, and has been for years. Again, I have this background in ad tech. There's a ton of fraud in ad tech. So that's another uh, similarity to, to the Web3 kind of ecosystem between there and, and ad tech that I didn't mention earlier. But, you know, these kind of nascent and emerging spaces are often wrought with fraud, right? So I, I knew Twitter was committing massive ad fraud. And I wanted to sort of like really highlight that, hey, like Twitter says that they have systems in place that are going to remove all these inauthentic accounts. But reality is it's, it's kind of not happening. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. On the show today, I am speaking with Jeff Goldberg, who has been fighting the good fight against Twitter manipulation for many years. Uh, the manipulation comes in lots of forms, from bot accounts uh, to um, inauthentic users who can swarm um, around and try to change public opinion. Jeff first got uh, into this fight when uh, a Periscope account that he had was um, taken offline by the, the owner of Twitter because the um, Jeff was trying to expose pedophilia that was going on on the on the platform. So he's been in this for a while. He was actually banned from Twitter uh, in 2019, and only just in January of this year got back on the platform. So he's fighting the good fight. He's using Web three to map and um, kind of visualize how this. Uh, these bot armies work uh, through his uh, firm that he co-founded called Social Forensics. Before that, Jeff uh, was a high school athlete and was um, getting into tech and uh, entrepreneurship uh, from an early age. Um, so we speak about that and we speak about um, Twitter under Jack Dorsey versus Twitter under Elon Musk and about how Web3 and blockchain might have a potential here to help solve some of these social media issues. So with all that uh, said, let's get to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Doing well, Matt. How about yourself? Yeah, really good. It's so great to talk to you. It's been um, a little while and I thought I should start off by just um, welcoming, welcoming you back to the infernal hellscape that is Twitter. Uh, I know you've been off the platform for a while, not of your own volition, but uh, I'm wondering if maybe you are um, regretting your life choices now that you're back on Elon Musk's uh, Twitter platform. Uh, thanks for, for welcoming me back. I appreciate that. Um, it's sort of like a mixed bag, to be perfectly honest. On the one hand, you know, so taking a step back, I was deplatformed in July 2019, and my account was reinstated. Uh, January 31st, 2023. So it's, it's been quite some time. Wow. And, you know, I, I really felt that it sounds in some ways, probably silly to say, but, you know, I was totally rugged of my voice. For me, Twitter has been an incredibly powerful platform in terms of the people across the world that I've been able to connect to sort of both on a personal and a professional level. So, you know, and that sort of spans from journalists to the work that I do, it's really useful to be able to use Twitter, you know, to connect to people across the world, right? So this stuff has, you know, it, it, like I said, it's great to have my voice back. But on the other hand, the anxiety levels, you know, <laughs> have increased for sure. I can certainly say that. Yes. I'm trying to sort of strike a nice balance between should I keep the app on my phone or not, maybe limiting certain hours. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to fall into this trap where every time you get sort of a notification on Twitter, uh, that you want to immediately reply. And, and I think that's not a healthy place to be. I've been there. I've, I've 
taking it off my phone. I've tried to do certain hours of the day or not on the weekends. I tried this rule where if the first two or three tweets I saw weren't interesting, I just close it and go away. <laughs> um, none of it worked. It's, it's well, hopefully you like, you like Elon Musk because these days, you know, that's all we sort of seem to be seeing in our for you tabs, right? <laughs> yeah. But I guess before we get into your background and everything, if, if you weren't back on Twitter, you wouldn't have been called the Tehran Terminator, which I thought was pretty funny. That is true. So, you know, back in 2019, some of these bad actors would sort of, you know, include me in memes. They would kind of call me Ayatollah Goldberg and sort of uh, take some image of me that they found online and then put sort of one of those religious hats. I don't even know what they're, what they're called, to be honest with you. But, but more recently, sort of from the other side, not the folks who were upset that I was calling out their manipulation from the folks that have been sort of being impacted by the manipulation. They kind of memed me as the Tehran Terminator, which is uh, pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. We will definitely get into that uh, in, in a little bit, but let's, um, let's go back a little bit um, and, and tell me about uh, your childhood and your upbringing. Where were, you, um, where were you raised? Sure. So I grew up in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area, about 25 miles east of San Francisco. Uh, my parents sort of came to the United States from, from Russia in the late 70s, uh, and I was born a few years thereafter. So you know, growing up in the Bay Area, if I were to contrast that to my sort of experience now, you know, it was a big culture shock for me, for example, to to, to go to uh, college in the Northeast. But um, I, we, we can sort of jump into that stuff a, a bit later. But growing up in the Bay Area, I sort of like, I think at, in some levels, seeing sort of the stuff that was happening with the internet, like in the 90s, kind of like made me interested in in, in tech, in venture, in, in that whole sort of thing. Uh, I ended up spending my first year of college studying at, at UC Berkeley, so I kind of stayed local. Uh, and then I transferred to the University of Pennsylvania. And sort of the main driving force in that decision was I wanted to be able to, to wrestle in college. And uh, Berkeley didn't have a team. Ah, interesting. So you were in the East Bay? What, what part of the East Bay did you grow up in? So I went to a high school uh, that's in Concord that's quite well known for football, in fact. It's called De La Salle. So it's a, it's a Catholic LaSallean school. And, you know, here I am. My last name is very Jewish, Goldberg. So, you know, I, I guess I have this habit of transferring schools after my first year. I, I transferred high schools after my freshman year into this one, uh, specifically because I really wanted to play baseball. And they had a great baseball program. Uh, they also have a fantastic football program. I, they may still hold the record for uh, national sort of uh, consecutive games won for a high school football team. Uh, there was a movie sort of uh, done on their program, a book written about it, oh, wow. and a number of sort of uh, NFL players uh, that have done quite well, including Maurice Jones-Drew, who I believe was nicknamed Pocket Hercules, uh, came out of the De La Salle uh, program. Wow, cool. So it seems like you're, you're quite the jock. You, you wanted to wrestle in college. You were into baseball. Um... Is that something that just came naturally to you as a kid? So I, I played sports my whole life. I wouldn't say it came naturally to me. I think, you know, I just have a good work ethic, I think. So, you know, in, in college, for example, I think I had to work a lot harder than most of my peers with the work that I do currently. Uh, I just know how much time I put into this. And I have a high level of confidence that others who are sort of operating in the same space just simply aren't as as committed. So it's not that athletics came naturally to me, um, but I sort of really put in a lot of work and I 
you know, I had seen a decent amount of success uh, with baseball uh, through my freshman year of high school. But after I made this transfer, I ended up not even playing baseball at this high school that I transferred to to play baseball. I had a biology teacher that happened to be the, the wrestling coach, and he kind of convinced me that, you know, I should get into wrestling. And after my uh, sophomore year wrestling, the end of the sort of year, I, I beat out a senior for the starting spot that had been sort of on the varsity team since his freshman year. So he was really sort of not too pleased by that. But it was sort of at that time that I realized, you know, may, maybe I should stick to, to wrestling. So I opted not to play uh, baseball for, for high school that, that spring. And, and instead, I competed in freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling. Oh, cool. um, yeah. And what was the Bay Area like back then in like the, the 80s? Because uh, I, I, um, I guess I'm nostalgic for Los Angeles back in that time because it was very different, um, seemed a lot less hectic and less crowded. Um, I know the Bay Area has gotten incredibly expensive and people are kind of souring on it in, in you know, different ways. But um, was, what was it like for you back, uh, you know, during, during that those yeah, I mean, I have, years? I have, you know, fond memories of, of growing up in the Bay Area and I think it's also important to kind of acknowledge, you know, the Bay Area is incredibly wide ranging, uh, but but broadly speaking, I think, you know, many people may assume that the Bay Area is just like San Francisco. And I think, you know, yeah. these are very different things, right? So, yeah, for sure. I mean, I grew up watching like the Oakland A's play baseball when they had Dennis Eckersley, Mark McGuire, Ricky Henderson, Jose Canseco, you know, those are sort of really fun games to go check out. I mean, the, the Oakland fans are sort of a unique breed, if you will. Um, <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. Were you, um, any chance, I remember the, I think it was the 1989 World Series, uh, or it was the playoffs. It was the Dodgers and the Giants, I think. When, when the bridge collapsed. Yeah, the earthquake. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that game? Uh, I, I do. I remember we were watching the game at some family uh, friend's house and in, in, in their their chimney had kind of cracked. It was oh, wow. uh, just all very surreal. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching it uh, on TV in LA and the camera just kind of jerked. And then I think it went black <laughs> and that was it. Uh, we had no idea what was going on, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a bad earthquake. So it, interesting in sports, like uh, I, I did a similar thing. I played baseball um, my whole life and, and I, I was like a pitcher and, and I was a pretty good hitter, but I got kind of tired of it in high school and I switched to playing tennis. Um, so like you, I went from a team sport to an individual sport. Mm -hmm. um, how did you, did you like that transition? Cause I, it was, it was very different. All of a sudden, you know, you're pretty much, you're the only one on the court or you're the only one in the wrestling ring and you don't have anybody to, to fall back on if you're not doing well. Did, did, did that ever uh, kind of occur to you? No, it absolutely did. And, you know, I think wrestling and tennis, you know, at the high school level, college level, let's say they're, they're similar in that they are individual sports, but there also are team aspects, right? Like there is still sort of a team score when you're playing against another high school, let's say in wrestling or in tennis. Yeah. So, you know, you still have this, this team aspect, but I, I kind of appreciated the fact that when you sort of, well, Hey, you don't, you don't require having any equipment to wrestle, right? You, 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 you yeah, shoes, well, got I those suppose, cool but, ear guards, right? What are those called? Yeah. Sort of, uh, you know, headset or ear guard yeah. i think you just call them I don't, I don't even know i actually didn't use them much in kind of high school nor college practices they kind of you know were a bit annoying frankly but you're supposed to wear them during competition so that's why sort of you know currently i have 
uh, cauliflower ear, what they call it. A lot of jujitsu people get it. Boxers get it. Wrestlers get it. Um, effectively, from your ear constantly just being, when I mean, you're fighting for for position, right? Yeah, uh, you're just getting can, smashed around, right? And your ear takes the brunt of it. Precisely. It, it fills up with sort of some liquids and pus. And if you don't get it drained right away, that stuff sort of uh, very quickly becomes solid. Oh, so, man. yeah. And, and sometimes some former wrestlers or boxers, let's say, they may get, you know, reconstructive ear surgery. But I think a lot of us sort of look at this as sort of, these are, these are war scars. Like when I see somebody on the street that has cauliflower ear, you know, A, I kind of just respect them because I know that they have a hard work ethic, but, you know, B is probably somebody that you don't want to mess with. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> um, so I was interested, um, you said that being in the Bay Area at that time sort of exposed you to tech and, and venture capital, maybe. Um, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? What, what was it that was appealing to you? Was it like the emergence of the internet at that, era, at that stage? Yeah, so in high school, uh, a wrestling teammate of mine who year older than me, he ended up sort of wrestling at Stanford, uh, pursuing both his uh, undergraduate degree and master's degree in computer science at Stanford. And, you know, it was through him that I kind of, you know, I, I think really started thinking about the, the potential of the internet to sort of instantly be able to uh, disseminate information to connect with people over the world. Uh, I think, but even more importantly, just kind of like understanding that if you're one of these search engines uh, and you're sitting on all of this intent data, that that's like incredibly powerful. So, yeah, um, you know, obviously there were these search engine wars. There was Alta Vista, Lycos, Dogfish, and so on and so forth. Uh, Google, I think, was maybe the twenty-first or twenty-some odd entrant ent uh, entrant into the market. And, you know, that really goes to show that it's not about kind of being first, but it's rather it's about getting things right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ask Jeeves is, is in the graveyard there too, right? Um, Precisely. Yeah. When did you know, like, so what did you do with that information? Like what, what area of it kind of appealed to you and where did you think you could maybe contribute or fit into that, that ecosystem? Um, I just sort of saw it in certain ways as just being like you know nascent in sort of like the wild wild west and to me operating in that sort of environment rather than a more rigid or more traditional one uh seemed interesting you know that didn't you know uh, sort of this friendship and the discussions i had with this individual didn't sort of push me let's say to pursue something like computer science in college um, I, I tried taking a computer science class at Berkeley. In fact, they're kind of, they're a weeder one, which is just notorious for, uh, you know, being quite difficult. And I wasn't suited for it. You know, it just wasn't for me. Um, initially, I, I worked in finance and sort of, I was rating uh, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities at one of the rating agencies. I was at Moody's. I did that for a couple of years. And... I kind of got out before Lehman and Bear sort of, you know, collapse went down and stuff. And did you cause the financial crisis, Jeff? Yes, you know, no. <laughs> um, but I, but I did see, you know, how I would say very aggressively, uh, many of these assets were being underwritten because the sort of the banks, you know, weren't keeping this stuff on their balance sheets, right? 
So yeah. I just can sort of vividly recall one of my colleagues looking at a deal, Stytown, for example, which is this uh, like apartment complex, uh, kind of like it looks like the projects, perhaps it's, in yeah, certain ways. Yeah, New York ways. City. Yep. Yeah, New York Very City, big. and Good they were sort of this was in two thousand six, two thousand seven, and you know they were going to sort of be uh, getting out all of the. I think there was many like rent stabilized, rent controlled sort of tenants in there, and they wanted to do some renovations. And then sort of, you know, increase the rents and just sort of the assumptions that were being used in these underwriting models. To me, it just seemed like, you know, it, it's similar to, to crypto, you know, in that, you know, when number has been going up for a long time, you sort of start to realize that number is going to be going back down as well. So <laughs> yeah. it, it just, it, it seems to, to be very frothy. Uh, look, I, it, had I gotten into CMBS maybe like a decade prior, you know, some of those folks had, had done extremely well. Um, but for me, it's sort of, it, it, it was a great first job in that I recommend all sort of uh, recent college grads, let's say, who, who maybe sort of have some analytic chops to, to take a job working in the financial services, to take a job in management consulting, uh, you know, at one of, if, if you can, at least, you know, Bain, BCG, McKinsey, the skill set that you'll develop will just be sort of invaluable. Yeah. You mentioned the, the Wild West sort of aspect of the early internet. Does it? Is crypto kind of hitting that same chord for you right now? Do you feel like it's it's in that same vein? Uh, yeah, and, and and perhaps even sort of like it's like that, but on steroids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because here you've got an entire retail contingent that can do pretty much anything they want, and you've got a lot of bad actors, as we've seen over the last couple of years, um, and basically very little regulation and rules of the road um so what could go wrong right <laughs> exactly yeah. you, you know and i most recently sort of career-wise so i was in finance kind of initially but i spent a number of years working in in ad tech and you know i see a lot of parallels with the kind of the the ad tech ecosystem perhaps more particularly what they call the digital display landscape uh, there's this banker terry kawaja that sort of you know does all of the major deals, I would say, within the, or, or most of them within the ecosystem. He's a very well-connected, uh, sharp individual. But he kind of, uh, I think, at least as I've seen, you know, now we have all of these various ecosystem maps, right? It could be a Web3 data-oriented one. It could be sort of a Layer 2-oriented one. But Terry uh, kind of pioneered, I think, sort of these infographics that include company logos. And he did it to sort of describe the digital display landscape. They're called Lumascapes. And it's just an incredibly sort of uh, complex ecosystem. You have so many players, lots of frenemies, if you will. Um, and, and I think sort of uh, Web3 is, is, is very similar in that regard. Well, can you um, break that down a little bit more? Just like, what do you mean by ad tech? Are you in the background, like, are you programming ads to, or like making, like, what is it that, what is the technology part of that advertising? Sure. So, uh, I focused, I mean, I did, I do have some experience on the search side as well. So search advertising, but uh, most of my experience is, is on the display side. So kind of graphical ads, if you will. And, you know, like historically people on the internet visit websites, right? There are cookies that can track, you know, your kind of activity. And as a result that allows, uh, whether it's a publisher, whether it's an intermediary, so somebody who's sort of, uh, has a technology that can help in 
advertiser gain more ROI on their ads or help a publisher improve their yield. So their revenue per thousand impressions, for example, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you effectively are crunching a lot of data on the user, sort of all you know anonymized, right? So there's no PII that is usually involved in this space, but you have this ecosystem where you have like uh, third-party brokers that are selling data. Uh, so as somebody who may be an ad network, like an intermediary who's working both with the advertisers to optimize their ROI and the publishers to improve their yield, you're sort of leveraging all of this user data that you have to kind of create a profile uh, to be used in, in advertising context, right? So an analogy in the crypto world is, you know, uh, you could establish based on addresses, uh, types of NFTs one transacts with sort of uh, when you're uh, able to leverage, you know, machine learning, for example, to link addresses that otherwise you wouldn't know are sort of tied together, right? Yeah. You can really establish uh, profiles of users on the blockchain in a similar way that kind of has been happening in, in the Web2 world when you look at sort of advertising, which as, as we sort of all know, is, is the fundamental business model for sort of a lot of this, this Web2 social media companies. Yeah, I've... Um... Just in my own life, I've, I've taken to whenever I shop online now, I just go into private mode because I don't want those ads to follow me for the next like three years of my life. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, you, you know, sometimes you have people who, you know, they're like, oh, I, I said something. And then, you know, is my phone listening to me? Is my computer listening to me? Then I saw some relevant ad. And more often yeah. than not, that's not the case. It's you visited a site and, you know, that's why you're seeing that ad. Maybe they're retargeting you. Uh, maybe they sort of have established that you like you know, a lot of baseball content and that there's, it's, it's, it's more so that it's sort of the data that's being, you know, mined on you as opposed to your, you know, device listening to you. Yeah, I get that. But it's still a very eerie feeling, isn't it? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a pleasant experience. So, so the analogy is there, right? You have sort of, uh, markets that are huge that have the potential to be huge. Uh, there's a fair amount of opacity when you look at the chain in which ads are served there are just so many players that are taking a piece of the ecosystem if you will yeah. uh and, and it's kind of similar in, in in the crypto world i would say so large markets kind of opaque and um yeah that's there are just many similarities to me the the guy who led products sort of i think as chainalysis saw tremendous growth for example uh he, he since has, has moved on, but I believe his John Dempsey, that's correct. I've sat down and had, had lunch with him, but he actually comes from an, an ad tech background as well. And, you know, he and I had a long discussion. This was when he was first entering the kind of the Web3 or back then they just called it kind of crypto, if you will, space. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think it was a really great hire, I think, uh, on behalf of the folks at Chainalysis, because uh, I think bringing somebody who has developed real products in the ad tech world you know, crypto, you kind of, you may have somebody who got in on Bitcoin or Ethereum really early. They don't have a lot of professional experience, but now all of a sudden they think that they can be giving, you know, uh, professional advice, right? Yeah. I, I think crypto, when you have people who have actually executed in, you know, people who are adults, basically, who have done stuff in their careers, uh, the, the sad reality is that's kind of a rare, a rare breed in the crypto ecosystem or the Web3 ecosystem. Yeah, and I guess I would say, um... At least with crypto, there is the possibility of, you know, a more peer-to-peer -peer, um, ecosystem. So you don't have all the possibility for all these intermediaries um, kind of each taking a cut. Do, do you feel that 
Are we too early for that, or do you feel like that is at least some of the promise um, of what you know Web three is is uh, espousing? No, I mean it's certainly part of the promise, right? And uh, not sort of be uh, not earning anything from having our data being mined, right? But sort of being compensated, if you will, either for content creation or for sharing our data with folks who want to kind of use it to to crunch data, whether it's for ads or other purposes. Uh, currently, you know, I. For me, the trade-off like is is clear. Like we want free content, you kind of have to maybe give up some of the the data, perhaps. But uh, this is a whole sort of separate discussion, right? When you look at sort of media and, and and the publishing sort of industry, is it better to have subscriptions? Is it better to kind of just you know uh, sell direct sponsorships and then sort of backfill with you know uh, AdSense or yeah. or something else, right? It's it's kind of a separate discussion, I would say. Yeah, the old adage is you know if if it's free, then you're the product, right? Correct. And, and um, I don't think many people actually understand how, how insidious that can be. Yes. So, okay, so from ad tech um, and, and having experience in the financial world, um, uh, rating CMBS, like where, at that point in your life, where do you, where do you think you're heading and, and where, where, what's exciting to you then? In 2013, I started kind of, doing my own thing, if you will. And that was just consulting with early stage startups. I had a friend who had just gotten into Y Combinator, uh, a sort of a, a legal tech focused company. And I was working with them sort of on the marketing side, sort of spanning strategy to really sort of doing the execution, trafficking ad tags, if you will, the really not sexy sort of work. And I really enjoyed sort of being somebody who can offer a fairly full suite of services, you know, A to Z when it comes to sort of digital marketing stuff uh, and in understanding different business models. So startups, like I mentioned, you know, really interested me. At this time, I kind of knew that I wanted to start one myself. I was probably a little bit scared, maybe scared of failing. Um, so instead, I kind of opted to consult for a bunch of startups. In 2015, I sort of dove headfirst into uh, live mobile video streaming. Uh, there was an app that sort of was incredibly buzzy at South by Southwest uh, called Meerkat. It ended up pivoting uh, later into something called House Party, which which got acquired. So Meerkat predated Periscope, and you know it's this mobile live streaming kind of participatory experience. So all that's required is your phone. You can broadcast to you know one to many to people across the world. And they can interact with you by typing sort of, there was like a, a chat section at the bottom so they can, you know, ask you a question. I, I sort of hacked an audience of close to 100,000 followers uh, across these sort of two live streaming apps. So I first started on Meerkat. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Twitter acquired Periscope. And I never wanted to kind of like be a content creator myself. Uh, I was just really bullish on live mobile streaming. I thought it was the future and I wanted to sort so of ingest. What, what were you talking about? Like, what was your focus? Like, what was your specialty or what? Obviously, people responded to it, but what were you, what was the message you were putting out there? Uh, I wasn't trying to sell people stuff, you know, as is the case with, I think, a lot of these new media channels. They kind of initially become flooded with, with marketers and with coaches, people trying to sell you stuff. I just walked around New York and sort of gave people tours. The first 50 mm -hmm. streams I did, you know, I didn't even show my face. <laughs> I, I always joke that I've got a face for radio. You know, here we're doing this 
uh, this this podcast and you know I requested sort of audio only. I don't really like being on video. I have sort of this aversion to it. So you know I kind of became this accidental content creator, and it was because I really wanted to roll my sleeves up and understand live mobile participatory video from the creator perspective. And before sort of building an analytics solution, let's say that's going to be you know Meerkat had an API. Presumably, you know I, th I thought Periscope slash Twitter would make a lot more of this data available. And, you know, I really sort of saw social media evolving back then in this direction where each platform, so LinkedIn, Instagram, and it just, this ended up coming to fruition. They all added sort of, you know, live video, let's say, as a feature because they already have this existing network. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to create a new network with pairing it with sort of this new medium, if you will, that's fairly difficult. So, you know, and for that reason, or, or, or at least in part, Twitter shut Periscope down as sort of this standalone app. Periscope had sort of their own community associated with it, but it just, it, it didn't really make sense because when people are putting time into creating content, uh, they want to maximize, or, or it depends what your motives are, I suppose, right? Uh, but generally speaking, a lot of people want to maximize the reach of their content. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at sort of a lot of these decentralized social networks that are trying to compete with, let's say, a Twitter, uh, I don't think that many of them are faring so well, um, be simply because it's, it's tough to compete with these network effects. You know, maybe a new shiny object comes out, you go join it. Um, but shortly thereafter, I think people end up going back to, you know, the, the dumpster fire that is Twitter. Yeah, tell me about it. I'm trying to create my own network with Decentral, and uh, it is definitely an uphill battle um, when you're kind of starting from scratch and trying to build an audience. Um, but hey, everybody, go to Decentral.io. So, so going back to this live video stuff, I became this accidental, you know, content creator, and I really hate the word, you know, influencer. Um, but I was doing sort of, you know, quote influencer work uh, pretty early on. Uh, I was hired, for example, by. Uh, by Heineken, or more specifically, their their PR agency Edelman, to kind of create content at the Rio Olympics from from the Holland Heineken House, um, and this was you know like 2016, right? So this is uh, pretty pretty early, I would say, uh, as it relates to sort of when a lot of you know influencer marketing work became more of the norm. Um, long story short, short, what ended up happening was after sort of investing a lot of time and, and frankly a lot of money as well. You know, in a lot of the content that I was creating around New York, you know, I would have to pay for these experiences. And I did so, you know, an example being going to the observation deck at the Empire State Building or sort of going on one of these double decker buses, you know, and, and sort of offering tours to people. To me, I sort of, it was an easy justification because I was just trying out all sorts of different types of content, different lengths of content. You know, I knew, for example, that if I went to Times Square at 4 p.m., I would gain this many followers versus if I went at 2 a.m. And sometimes I would do that because I wanted to build a global audience. I would gain this many followers. So to me, it was sort of uh, I tried to kind of like, you know, really break this stuff all down into sort of like a science, if you will. And so, yeah, like I put time into this. I put money into this. And what ended up happening was, you know, you talked about community earlier and, and what you're building at Decentral. And because I sort of, unlike many of the content creators uh, who would broadcast a lot as opposed to viewing the streams of other content creators and really forging relationships with people, you know, I would go into their streams. I would encourage people to, you know, uh, you know people reach out to me for advice and I would uh, often amplify the sort of uh, content of new streamers. So I would help 
other people on Periscope and Meerkat kind of discover new streamers. A lot of people in that community sort of, you know, really appreciated how I was helping them out, if you will, right? So yeah, they often would also reach out to me if they kind of had noticed a new streamer or, you know, a new feature or whatever. I was sort of a hub, if you will. And, and a lot of uh, Periscope users started reaching out to me saying, hey, like, here's a link to a stream or here's sort of this account that is going into all of these sort of streams of children who aren't supposed to be on the app first and foremost. I think their, their terms of services like, or was 18 at the time. You basically had, you know, a, a lot of people coming to me saying, hey, Jeff, there are a bunch of pedophiles on this app preying on children. I've seen some really disturbing things. And I just want to put this on your radar because, you know, I would often tweet about things Periscope related, you know, whether it's a new feature or something like this even, right? Yeah. So I started becoming very vocal on Twitter, you know, tagging Periscope execs, uh, really trying to sort of get them to, they had some features in the app that actually made it easier for pedophiles to find children to prey on. And they yeah. did this despite multiple users telling them about it. Um, so I worked with BBC in the UK on an investigation. Slate covered it here in the US as well. But I was actually discussing some of this stuff during a live broadcast. Uh, and in the middle of the stream, Periscope, which is owned by Twitter, uh, they pulled the plug on me. They suspended my account. And to me, that was sort of like, like when I really just reflected on and realized the power that you know, the, the leaders, if you will, at these centralized social media companies have, you know, they can really, uh, you know, not transparently and with zero accountability, remove people. And, and this can truly kind of uh, impact one's, one's livelihood. And in this particular case, uh, I had just started doing, you know, some really interesting influencer deals at the time. I was uh, close to uh, closing a deal with a large brand that involved uh, creating a, a weekly series for them. And, and all of a sudden I couldn't do these things anymore. Yeah. And it's not even a gatekeeper role, right? Cause gatekeeping kind of implies at least some sort of fairness, maybe, you know, there's power, there's a power dynamic to a gatekeeper, but here you were trying to expose the dark side of what was capable on this platform. And it should have led to measures put in place so that that couldn't occur anymore. And instead they take you off the platform for, you know, exposing how they're letting pedophiles, you know, find new targets, which I find just disgusting and, and shocking. Um, and, and Fortunately, also, you know, I have multiple, many thoughts rather on, on Elon's Twitter, but one thing I, I quite appreciate is how Elon, at least publicly seems to be making it a priority to kind of, you know, clean up things in that regard you know, mm -hmm. children being sort of uh, abused on, on this platform, which is, which is great. And so what did that experience leave you with when you had, you know, you were experimenting and you were, you know, like you said, trying to take a scientific approach to how to build an audience. You were very successful at it. You were getting deals, um, sponsorships and things that, you know, you're making a career out of it. And then like you said before, you were rugged by Twitter. I mean, the, the, I guess the original rug was was Periscope. But coming out of that experience, what did that? How did that change you? And what did you? Did, how did you pivot from that? So when I was rugged by Periscope, frankly, it left me quite pissed at at Twitter. And you know, basically, we're talking now summer of 2017, and maybe. Few months prior to that time, 
maybe closer to a year, somebody had sent a bunch of fake followers to my Twitter account. So I think one thing that people may often don't realize is, let's say if, if I want to send a bunch of fake followers to your account, Matt, it's really easy for me to do it. You go on Google, you sort of, you know, search for buy Twitter followers and you know, you'll get a bunch of results and you can send them anywhere. It's not only, it doesn't require you being logged into in your, your own account to accept followers, right? So I was quite annoyed that somebody had sent a bunch of fake followers to my account. And, you know, most people may, may actually be happy about this. They appear more popular, right? But for me, right. I was working as this uh, content creator. And in theory, it could have been some other content creator, some other streamer on Periscope who may be pitching the same uh, agencies, the same brands as, as myself. And, and this is just sort of the rationale that, that I had, right? It could be different for somebody else. And, and you know, I thought, I want to kind of have a clean audience, you know, it, what yeah, you if want it to be organic, is, right? Yeah. I mean, what if somebody is going to say, really Hey, look, like this individual, like, yes, this is different. This is his Twitter followers, but overnight he gained 10,000 Twitter followers. You know, that's like a proxy for character. Is this the person that you would like sort of, uh, representing your brand? And, and I didn't really want that. So I reached out to some folks who I knew at Twitter and said, Hey, look, somebody sent all of these fake followers my way. Like, you know, you guys are supposed to kind of have systems in place that kind of you know, mitigate uh, the removal of, of these kind of, you know, these inauthentic accounts, if you will. And, and the person said, oh, kind of don't worry about it. Like it, over time, that'll kind of like just reduce itself to zero. I, I didn't want to push sort of back too hard, I guess. Um, but when I got suspended from Periscope, I kind of emerged with this like, okay, like I know Twitter is committing massive advertising fraud and, and has been for years. Again, I have this background in ad tech. There's a ton of fraud in ad tech. So that's another uh, similarity to, to the Web3 kind of ecosystem between there and, and ad tech that I didn't mention earlier, but you know these kind of nascent and emerging spaces are often wrought with fraud, right? So I, I knew Twitter was committing massive ad fraud, and I wanted to sort of like really highlight that, hey, like Twitter says that they have systems in place that are going to remove all these inauthentic accounts, but reality is it's, it's kind of not happening. So what they I want, do, they want the ahead. followers to be inflated, right? That actually benefits Twitter as a platform. Is that is that is it as easy as that? As simple as that? So so it's, it's I think something that many don't realize is so let's say when Twitter and Facebook or Meta still is a public company, Twitter no longer is. But let's go back to the time when you know Twitter was public company, sort of uh, sharing their fin financials with with Wall Street every quarter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter absolutely and twitter's cfo uh has full control over what that looks like uh and, and, and here's precisely why so twitter currently or recently at least has stated that they remove uh a, more than a million inauthentic accounts per day so now we're talking about a pool of new new accounts on a monthly basis of you know at least 30 million on a quarterly basis we're, we're talking about 90 million now right yeah. so Depending on how uh, aggressive or conservative, if you will, of a, let's call it a scrub that they apply to this pool of inauthentic accounts, right? You can massage the books. Like you have full control over what you're reflecting to Wall Street, just that your story is always going to reflect number go up. Yeah. So you were dealing, you've dealt with Jack Dorsey's Twitter when he was still there. And then now you're dealing with Elon Musk's Twitter. What, what kind of compare and contrast them to me? Do you, uh, you've, you've mentioned you laud them for trying to clean up some of these inauthentic accounts, but I'd be really curious from your inside perspective, 
how the the management of of the two Twitters uh, kind of compares. You know, there were many people who felt like Twitter was going to collapse all of a sudden because Elon came in and you know just with really drastic changes. I don't know the exact numbers, but let's just say maybe it was eight thousand, nine thousand employees, and down to maybe two twenty five hundred, two thousand or something. But like, I think what a lot of people maybe aren't fully realizing is they may think Twitter is a tech company. Twitter is not a tech company. Twitter is a media company. Twitter has and has had a large sort of uh, services oriented team that's dealing with, you know, Madison Avenue here in New York, right? The big brands who are spending on there and their advertisers. Uh, Twitter's tech notoriously is, is known to not be so good. Uh, yeah. Twitter has, you know, messed up acquisitions at a massive scale historically. You know, look at Vine, for example, uh, I would say Periscope as well. And, and how hard can it be to get an edit button on a tweet? I mean, come on. Correct. I mean, I think sort of like, obviously, I realize that's something that a lot of people have been asking for for a while, but it, it could have, you know, grave impacts when it comes to uh, the information integrity on the platform, you know, with, with regards to people changing their tweets after the fact and, and sort of how you're logging all the changes and, and these sort of things. So I think it's not necessarily such a simple issue. Uh, but so your initial question, comparing Jack's Twitter to Elon's Twitter, uh, and it's very simple. Twitter was a dumpster fire before, and Twitter still is a dumpster fire. Um, I think Elon's discussion around, you know, really wanting to sort of do societal good in in, in purchasing Twitter, I don't I don't buy that. I think if Elon wanted to do societal good, he would just. Uh, and some people think he is burning this thing to the ground, but I think if Elon truly wanted to do societal good, he would just shut this thing down because yeah, it causes tremendous harm to society. Yeah. Um, I think, you know. Ultimately, and I think there are some, some great things about sort of uh, Elon in that he's obviously visionary when it comes to sort of uh, the business world. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of experience sort of working uh, on social networks. Uh, I mean, he, he tweets a lot and he's active, but I think he hasn't necessarily thought through uh, a lot of the more sort of nuanced issues and particularly around things like platform manipulation. Uh, I think... Unfortunately, uh, people kind of use words like, you know, or, or use things like uh, misinformation and disinformation rather than platform information. And I really don't like how a lot of my colleagues have positioned themselves, let's say, as misinformation experts or disinformation experts. And I would push back and hope that many of them would instead think of themselves as folks who focus on platform manipulation because, you know, these platforms have rules and it doesn't matter if the content is true or not. What matters is, are these behavioral rules, these behavioral mechanisms sort of being violated? So in the context of Twitter, Matt, you could tweet something that is factually correct. So it has nothing to do with misinfo or disinfo, right? But if a bunch of fake accounts, a bunch of troll accounts, a bunch of sock puppets, you know, some bots included even perhaps, are retweeting your content that's factually correct, that is a violation of the Twitter rules. It has nothing to do with the content. When you start opening up the discussion around sort of, you know, is this misinfo? Is this disinfo? I'm an expert in sort of gauging truth. To me, it just all seems really silly. And it also kind of really politicizes the issue. Uh, when Instead, if you just focus on these behavioral mechanisms, I think uh, that's much more interesting. Yeah. Um, and let's get into some more of that misinformation um, that you have combated over time, because it does have real world consequences. Um, 
there was Correct. the situation in the North Carolina um, town that uh, had, uh, was it Raleigh? Yeah. So, and this is, uh, for those listening, uh, I, I first kind of connected with Matt, I believe in 2019, we, we grabbed sort of lunch here in, in New York. And this was when, when Matt was starting to write uh, his book. And uh, Matt included sort of this piece about these North Carolina accounts, his book Into the, the Ether. Is that, that's correct, Matt? Uh, out of the ether. Sorry, oh, out of the ether. I, it's okay. I apologize there. Yeah. So, so Matt kind of included this North Carolina story uh, in his book. And what was happening was, this was 2018, and I found sort of a family of accounts, if you will, on Twitter that were falsely representing the state of North Carolina and various North Carolina municipalities. So there was a, a Greensboro one, a Raleigh one, and several others. Um, the Greensboro inauthentic account, for example, like the real one maybe was just like, you know, Greensboro and the fake one was sort of Greensboro underscore NC. I'm sort of paraphrasing here. I don't remember the exact details. I've seen so many of these flavors of manipulation, but what ended up happening was uh, via, using, uh, via using tactics that violate Twitter rules, so uh, following accounts in mass that on the opposite side, so these accounts themselves had a script to follow back any follow requests that they received, these sort of uh, accounts that were uh, seeking to falsely represent the state of North Carolina and various North Carolina municipalities actually had accumulated uh, audiences on Twitter that to the casual observer were, were much larger than the official accounts, right? right? Many people aren't realizing that this was done sort of through these mechanisms that I, that I just described. The fake account had 250,000 followers and the real one had 20,000 followers. And the, fake, the, the fake account would tweet something like a million times and the, the real account was tweeting you know, uh, tens of thousands of times. And, you know, so yeah. The, Absolutely. The, yeah. And, and this fake, this fake North Carolina account, because you know how on Twitter you're viewing a profile and it'll kind of show you, Hey, this account is like also followed by these people. So like quite literally hundreds of the people that I was connected to on Twitter were following this fake North Carolina account. Yeah. So it's, and then and, what and, they would do is they were very insidious, right? They would post things about like, Oh, here's what's going on around Raleigh. You know, here's like a new restaurant that's opened, or you know, here's a news story that's real. But then they would weave in, they'd weave in this misinformation and disinformation into that. So that that was kind of the insidious I, I, I part of it. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, say Matt that it was you know mis or disinformation that they were kind of weaving in, but rather they would kind of condition you to expect content. Hey, there is you know hyper local content, right? They would tag a museum. There's this new exhibit. They would you know, have foot soldiers, somebody would be there to take photos of stuff. And, you know, they would tag, let's say that local venue, that local venue has legit local followers, maybe they retweet it. And all of a sudden, sort of these inauthentic accounts start to get real followers that kind of are from, you know, these various hyper local kind of communities, right. And what they said sort of then would do is, as you mentioned, they were very actively kind of pushing out content. But maybe like every 10th, every 15th tweet, they may have sort of like a conservative article that they would post. Again, it wasn't necessarily mis or disinformation, but they were kind of conditioning you to expect a certain kind of content. And once they got you in as a follower, uh, it, it's psyops. They would sort of try to put content in front of you that they wanted to maybe over time try to impact uh, your political views or, mm -hmm. you know, that's the sort of thing that was taking place there. And then in a much larger, on a much larger scale, um, 
and maybe of more importance here was what what's been happening for years um in iran with um the, the, the official accounts or fake accounts and and how they're trying to sway um political beliefs right and and elections and can you just kind of take it from like t tell us yeah. what, what's been going on with iran for the last several years sure so so iran is no different than the rest of the world in that at this point you know you, you have sort of like the ministry of foreign affairs for every country and, and many of them sort of like view their job as sort of like brand marketers for canada or brand marketers for the uk right, yeah, right. and sort of what happens is a lot of the, the tactics that marketers have used to manipulate social media platforms have now sort of really penetrated uh, government agencies such that it's sort of the norm that most governments, whether through their uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs or through other kind of agencies, are, are probably running some sort of offensive platform manipulation. Uh, and, and oftentimes they're even targeting their own citizens. And this is sort of stuff that we've seen uh, both through the Twitter files, uh, but also through, uh, I think it was in maybe October. Let me just sort of double check this here. Um, but there's this sort of September, in fact, there's a Washington Post article that's titled Pentagon Opens Sweeping Review of Clandestine Psychological Operations. Complaints about the U.S. military's influence operations using Facebook and Twitter have raised concern in the White House and federal agencies. So you know how the Pentagon sort of uh, has been called upon, let's say, to, to audit uh, groups like CENTCOM around what they're doing in this regard. So, you know, many of them say that they're simply doing this stuff to, uh, to, to champion and it's not just specific to the U.S. again, right? To champion their own country's interests, but but the reality is, well, yeah, in you many could cases, flip it and, and use the Russian example in the 2016 election with what they did, right? That was that was in the Russian interest, but it wasn't in the U.S. interest. I guess is what I would just say. Yeah. So I mean, a lot, a lot of this stuff is, and it's the same thing with sort of like you know tech that is maybe supposed to be used to track bad guys. Oftentimes, some of this you can refer to it as like surveillance tech. If authoritarian regimes get a hold of it, you know, they're often using it not just to track the bad guys, but to monitor everybody else. And that's rather problematic, I would say. On the whole Russia sort of situation, you know, I, I think that, you know, I do think that Russia and other countries um, have played an impact sort of uh, in, in U.S. politics. But I think that the unfortunate thing is from the U.S. perspective, most people seem to think that, quote, Russia bots Sort of that they equate that with platform manipulation. So, so the reality is like platform manipulation extends well beyond sort of Russia's influence, but also like it impacts just every country basically at this point. And, and sort of bots have become this catch-all phrase for everything, whether it's like a troll account, which is actually operated by a human. So it's not sort of a bot. A bot just means like a fully automated account. Everything, there's sort of just been this like reduction to Russian bots. And I think that does sort of a big disservice to the much broader ecosystem uh, of that exists around platform manipulation. Yeah, and wasn't the Russian security agency, the FSB, weren't they kind of implicated in some of that manipulation as well? So, so not a bot, but something that is you know very close to the Kremlin and had had an objective in mind. Correct. Uh, uh, I don't recall the acronym you're mentioning, uh, to be honest. But like, they're sort of like you know these these F IRA FSB, kind of troll farms. Yeah, okay. that's the that's the predecessor of the uh, KGB. The, Got it. Uh, 
Yeah. So we talked about earlier how this stuff can have, you know, real, real world impact. And we, we talked about sort of this, this North Carolina case. And, and by the way, um, the sort of social media manager from one of these municipalities. So, so Twitter didn't remove any of this stuff when I tagged their execs sort of uh, in threads online that would get shared by a lot of journalists and get some good traction. Instead, they opted to, to block me. Uh, easier to hide your, hide your hand, head in the sand, I suppose. Uh, however, there was sort of a local media outlet that covered this stuff. And as a result, maybe a day or two later, Twitter removed these accounts. And this piece got a quote from uh, the social media manager from one of the municipalities that was being impersonated. And this guy straight up said, you know, like we've been trying to get into touch for Twitter for the longest time. Uh, we had we had no success. We really don't want people sort of to think that, you know, this is the sort of content that we as a municipality are championing. And, and this person, you know, to no avail, were they able to get Twitter to do this? It wasn't until media pressure that Twitter sort of actually uh, changed. Yeah. And again, it's about having an organic content like feed, right? You want, you always want your social media presence to reflect who you are, not, you don't want to have somebody take it over for you, from you and, and put out stuff that you would never put out. So. Correct. So going back to, going back to the Iran and sort of, uh, I want to kind of refocus around that if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So another piece there that's quite interesting is, and sort of just one more point here on, on a real impact, and then I can really give a quick overview of, of the Iran social media scene more broadly. So uh, there's this account on Twitter called Heshmat Alavi, H-E-S-H-M-A-T, last name A-L-A-V-I. So uh, Heshmat Alavi has had uh, pieces published sort of in various like op-ed sections for well-known publications, you know, Forbes, The Hill, and, and others, if you will, right? Um, it turns out that this sort of Hashmat Alavi like doesn't exist. The Intercept did a great investigation on it. Uh, I kind of uh, uh, gave them some data uh, when they reached out that really just kind of showed that this Hashmat Alavi account, not that it wasn't a real person, but rather that it engages in platform manipulation. So you know, to really kind of hammer this point across about the real impact of this stuff, uh, the Intercept piece uh, done by uh, uh, Murtaza Hussein, fantastic uh, reporter, in this piece, he opens up by sort of talking about how there's sort of this like, uh, 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 you know, meeting at the Pentagon, right, where some government person is kind of asked to justify a certain foreign policy decision that was, that was made. And as a result, to like the reporters, they quote an article by Hashmat Alavi. Wow. So like, that's like really ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. And, and this account sort of is still active on Twitter. Uh, after this, uh, I would say, a pretty explosive investigation by The Intercept, Twitter suspended the account for like a week. And then this account was mysteriously sort of reinstated. Uh, meanwhile, my account was suspended for several years because I was reported by bad actors for calling out their manipulation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that specifically, was it the, um, the stuff you did on Iran that led you to being suspended on Twitter? Or was it like a combination of things or? Yeah, my, my account was, you know, uh, mass reported by bad actors spanning from, you know, folks who were trying to manipulate the platform and more, you know, geopolitical sort of flavors to uh, crypto folks, sort of like the XRP army <laughs> would, would often, uh, mass report my account. And, you know, the reality is sort of like XRP arm kind of created the, the, the standard, if you will, but not for sort of like, you know, simplifying, you know, payments, if you will, instead, they kind of have created the standard for like these 
these online armies. Now you kind of have this across the ecosystem uh, very broadly. You have Bitcoin-centric inauthentic accounts. You have ETH-centric inauthentic accounts for like a bunch of these layer twos, for all of these NFT projects. It, it's effectively gotten to a point where you're looking to launch something uh, and you kind of have like as a line item on your budget, like you, you kind of just know that you're going to have to throw some funds at it to create this fake community on Twitter, on Telegram. Nothing we sort of see online is we should be taking at face value. Yeah. Um, the XRP army came after me when I was reporting on them for Bloomberg. And uh, it wasn't, wasn't too bad, but uh, it did piss me off because what they did was somebody signed me up for every email newsletter that you can oh, imagine around the world in like different languages. And like, so my inbox at Bloomberg just became completely unusable. Um, it was more of an annoyance, but it did... Yeah, they, 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 they succeeded like... in getting my LinkedIn account suspended, the XRP army. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty effective. But that, that brings me to, like, you know, we talk, write about this a little bit in the book, um, about what, what can be done about this. And I know you, you've got somewhat mixed feelings about, you know, crypto or Web3 or a blockchain-based system for a social um, media platform has your thinking changed at all since I think we probably spoke in 2020 or 2019, somewhere around there? Do you, do you, do you see solutions here uh, in a, with the blockchain or? Yeah, I, I think things like Lens Protocol, you know, having a social graph that is portable, you know, that's like really great in theory, uh, but coming from the perspective of like, so, you know, Lens has uh, a bunch of great folks kind of working on, on building the protocol there and you know building out partnerships and stuff uh one of the person that i've been in touch one of the people i've been in touch with there is a former twitter data scientist and he kind of you know helped me make sure that i had all of the data properly and was understanding it all to kind of map out this was several months ago uh to, to map out the social graph for all of the lens profiles and you know what i quickly sort of saw was that you have basically the same folks who have already established an infrastructure of fake accounts to disseminate content across web two social networks. They've already started sort of uh, building a similar infrastructure layer across web three social, you know, decentralized protocols like Lens in this case, right? So I kind of brought this up to them and, you know, from their perspective, you know, they view things at least my understanding of it was they view things as sort of they want to allow the application layer to kind of come in and you know it's it's akin to sort of some folks who say like uh let's have twitter sort of like uh have a bunch of different sort of algorithms that sort of determine what content you're going to see and the users can pick which one they want right so the same thing with like lens protocol if you're sort of assuming that at the application layer they're going to have tooling that's going to sort of allow that the information integrity is not sort of like being disrupted by bad actors. That's a lot of faith, a lot of trust to be putting into your application layer. And while I understand that these are supposed to be decentralized protocols, I think you you kind of have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. And you know, it's one thing when you have maybe just a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand you know profiles, whether it's on uh, Lens or Farcaster or you know any of these other folks who are trying to build decentralized sort of Twitter competitors, right? You have to start thinking about these issues now versus when you have, you know, let's say a hundred million users. So I think you're going to have many of the same problems that sort of uh, web two is faced by just making something decentralized doesn't all of a sudden alleviate some of these problems. 
Well, you're kind of talking about reputation, right? Like you can have a reputation from what you've been putting out and like the, I guess like your network and people can attest to you. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like that can just be gamed as well. Correct. So if, if there isn't any safeguards in place at the protocol level, this is just my opinion, uh, to mitigate against sort of the creation of accounts that aren't, let's say, uh, you know, maybe like one-to-one -one or accounts that don't exist sort of as this uh, single purpose to kind of disrupt the information integrity on your platform. If you're not mitigating against this stuff, uh, then at the application layer, it's just putting too much trust that these folks are going to care about having the tooling in place to, to, to sort of remove this. So you have to, I think, have a, a bit more friction, some KYCing, if you will. I don't know the exact solution, right? But I just don't think that the account creation process, and, and of course, it's, it's, there is more friction uh, because you have to sort of have, in the case of, uh, you know, many of these, let's say, uh, you know, you have to be familiar with things like Ethereum, right? And, and that, that is a friction point to sort of versus yeah. just putting in an email to create an account, right? But you still yeah. have bad actors who are already trying to sort of establish an infrastructure of fake accounts to, you know, manipulate sentiment across these platforms. So with that, um, before we wrap up, tell me what you're doing with social forensics and, and where that the idea for your company came from and, and what you guys are, are doing um, in this space. Sure. So uh, Social Forensics is an online analytics firm that uses social graphs to better understand communities, influence, and the spread of information across social media platforms. And taking a step back, uh, it's a really similar exercise. For example, the way that we are visualizing the connections within uh, somebody's social graph, right? So arrows kind of coming in, arrows coming out, that can be analogous to a blockchain, you know, uh, payments going to and payments going from, right? It's a very sort of similar exercise. And prior to starting uh, social forensics, uh, I, I co-founded with what what was uh, a former sort of friend of mine, wrestling teammate from from college. You know, I think often, as can be the case with with, with startups, is you know these things are really sort of uh, intense, and you know it's not too uncommon for people to kind of you know. Uh, but heads, if you will, and, and friends often can have fallings out, falling outs rather, right? So, uh, Elementus they raised around a capital, sort of, you know, recently. I think valuing them at like 160 million dollars. Uh, again, I haven't been involved with the company for years at this point, but um, the, it's, it's just it's a very similar exercise. So I kind of, uh, after looking into the fake followers that were bought to my Twitter account, and and I actually hired. Um, uh, what was my, my co-founder at Alentis, Max, to kind of visualize that network. That's what sort of got us thinking that, hey, we should uh, maybe try to do similar stuff uh, in the blockchain sphere because it's kind of a similar problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can think of you know, blockchain as a public data layer uh, in the same way that, that Twitter is kind of effectively, or at least historically, has been kind of effectively a public data layer because of how they make their data available much more so than other social media platforms. The problem is this data is not sort of uh, presented uh, to the user in, in a way that makes sense often. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, social so you're there to interpret it and visualize it and, and show people like, this is, this is what I'm saying by manipulation or this here, you can see the fake accounts are all coming from here. Correct. And, and, and I think, you know, I think at some point in the future, we're going to see sort of emerging of firms that are doing sort of blockchain forensics, blockchain analytics with firms that are doing social media analytics and social media forensics, because uh, 
with, I don't want to sort of get into all of the details just here, but I, th I think there are uh, a good number of synergies that exist uh, between that sort of when you're looking at blockchain activity, sort of, you know, scraping social data and really understanding social media networks and sort of data structure there and whatnot can sort of really augment the blockchain data uh, when it comes to investigations. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Jeff, this has been a really, really interesting and eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for um, all your openness and and telling us your story. Um, tell, tell people how they can find, the, find you if, if they want. Sure, so my parents opted to give uh, people two opportunities to mess up the spelling of my name. So you can find me on Twitter at Jeff, and that's not J-E-F-F, -F, but rather G-E-O-F-F. -F. And my last name is Goldberg, but that's Goldberg without the letter D in it. So it's Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, -F, Goldberg, G-O-L-B-E-R-G. And I'm also on Medium under the same uh, handle. You can sort of see, I think I have maybe uh, 50 or so posts uh, going back to maybe 2018 of sort of me documenting uh, various flavors of social media manipulation. Yeah, I definitely check it out. It's it's fascinating stuff. And Jeff has been um, doing fighting the good fight here for a long time. So Jeff, please keep it up. And, and again, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story with us. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 